go to Will Lee's. Okay, I won't spend much time on this introduction like I would want to do because of all the presumption I just took. And what I want to say is Will Lee's is a native son. Will Lee's is a product of what God does in a family that is seeking the Lord first. I know that Will Lee's has a calling on his life. Exactly what that is, how that's going to manifest what that is, we're still working through, and part of him preaching is part of us as a family working through it together and going after it together. But the bottom line is, this is, this is an, you know, if the world were filled with more Will Lees, the world would be a much, much, much better place. Okay? So this is an outstanding young man and an outstanding example of the fruit that you have borne as a family. So just welcome him if you would. Love you, all right, well, good morning. Hi. Hello. How you doing? Um, so this summer has been one of the most amazing summers of my life. And I don't know who else feels that way about their summer where, I don't know, it's kind of weird because even this summer has been the, like some of the most difficult times of work for me too, where things have just gone absolutely poorly, like right down the drain. Uh, but I feel amazing now. I, I could repeat this last week every week. Man, that'd be the best. I was on vacation. It's actually against the law for me to have facial hair, true story, uh, <laughs> while I'm at work because I, I work for UPS and do a lot of safety and compliance training and have to do the same kind of like firefighter gear stuff that you may only see in the movies. Um, but for me, that means that, you know, I can't even have facial hair. So when I'm on vacation, I'm like, hmm, just let it go. I don't even care how it looks. It could be the worst thing in the world, but I'm going to do it. And so this is like my last little clutching to summer uh, before the fall really starts. Now, this summer for me, even with all that, it's just been full of joy. Like really rest, relaxation, enjoying family. Who else has had a summer like that where you go, you know, compared to the rest of my year, I get to spend time with people. I get to go out and enjoy creation. Things are just good. And that joy for me is something that I wish I could have year-round. Anyone else want to have that year-round? Okay, all right. We're on the same page now. Why is it that we have it only in the summer and lose some of that joy, which I think God has for us year-round? Why do we lose that year-round? I want to propose something to you, and it's that we don't really have the joy of the Lord all the time in our lives because we're not completely transformed. Is anyone here more joyful about summer than they are about the Lord? Yeah, I think sometimes guilty, <laughs> guilty as charged. Well, what's the joy of the Lord? What's the joy of salvation? Is it do you still have that same feeling, that same joy that you did when you were first saved? Do you feel like the joy that you have is radically different than the joy that's elsewhere in the world? Or do you feel, maybe like me sometimes, that if I was to compare my life with someone who wasn't a believer, from the outside, it wouldn't look radically different? I believe that what God has for us is a radically different life, a radically different way of living, a radically different way of experiencing the world, that we would be able to hold on to the full joy of our salvation. 
Um, where we're going to be today, and I hope you're with me so far, is we're going to be going after that joy. We're going to be going after and fighting against the things in our lives that steal from our joy, that would even seek to kill us off. We are, uh, if this wonderful thing, I don't know what direction to hold it. Let's go with this one. All right, is in our series on Empowered. And where we're going to be picking up is in Luke 4, 14 through 17. I want to preface this just a little bit uh, because I believe that it, it goes in line with the things that we've been hearing over the previous weeks. Uh, we've just come out of Jesus being in the wilderness, being tempted. I think it was three, four weeks ago that Justine preached on that. And uh, if you didn't hear it, if you weren't here, I highly recommend go back and listen to it and hear it. Um, I think that the themes we'll be picking up on will be right from that. So Jesus was baptized. The Holy Spirit came down on him. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for his tempting. And now Jesus was being led out again by the Spirit. Where it says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's what I expect him to do. I expect him to like take his hand and lightning bolts shoot out of it. And he like calls stars to fall from the heavens and they're shooting stars everywhere. It's just amazing. I don't know. Uh, he walks on water. He goes up to people who are blind. He puts his hand over their eyes and they can see. Jesus, filled with the Spirit, does something different. Filled with the Spirit, he began teaching in synagogues. That's not really what I expect. And we have the same slide there. Here we go. Uh, and this, this is what he said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Well, as I was going through that, there were some things that stood out to me, some speed bumps. And if you're familiar with us talking about that before, all I'm really saying is that as we read the word, sometimes there's something that stands out. It just sounds a little bit different. Maybe it's something that you've even read before, heard before, but it causes you maybe a little sense that you should take pause and pray about it and think about what it is. So for me, that happened uh, in Luke 18 and 19, said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach. I think the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to uh, heal someone, to give a prophetic word, some kind of utterance, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, um, a special measure of faith, not to preach. That's not what I think. That's not what I assume the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do. Well, the other thing that came up to me is who it was for. It was for the poor, for the captives, for those that were blind, for those that were oppressed. I think that in our losing the joy of our salvation, in some way, we've become the poor, the captives, the oppressed, the blind. I don't know about you, but I want the fullness of joy that God meant for me to be back in my life. I want it to be something that year-round I look at and, you know, seasons come, seasons go, and we are going to experience different things in different seasons. But the fullness that God has for me, I want that every day. I want to be free from where I've been oppressed, 
free from being a captive. In the places that I'm spiritually blind, I want to be able to see. And I want the fullness of the riches that Christ has for me in my life. Anyone else want that this morning? Amen. Well, that's where we're headed today. And do we have someone to pray? Oh, hey, Jesse, will you um, pray for the sermon, lift up another church, since we were very coordinated this morning? I'd love to, Will. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Father, thank you for your presence here, um, just as we worship this morning, as we hear as a family. And I pray that you'd be with Will as he speaks about your joy and how we can chase after that and find you, no matter the circumstance of the season. Lord, you say your joy is our, is our strength. And Father, we trust in that. I pray you'd be with him as he talks to us this morning, that we'd hear from you through him. And Lord, I pray for Bell Press. Thank you for the great people that are there, Lord, whose lives you have blessed and who you're with. I pray that they'd continue to find your favor in the city. And bless your name. Amen. 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 Okay, so uh, that's where we're picking up. That's where we're going. And we're going to actually backtrack just a little bit in the story. We're going to go back into the wilderness temptation of Jesus because I think that there's something there that's critically important that would help us understand what it is that's robbing from our own lives. So there's, if you remember the story, there's three ways that Jesus was tempted by Satan. The first one is in Luke 4, 3. It said, and the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. What was the temptation? I think Justine really nailed it a few weeks ago, and I'm probably not going to do as good a job recapping, so go back and listen to that. But the temptation that was there for him was physical. It was something that he absolutely needed to survive and to live as we would see it. Jesus was actually already uh, not eating for 40 days. There was 40 days that passed when he was fasting and praying, and it said that he became hungry at the end of the 40 days. That's a measure of faith that I would like to have where because I was so believing and trusting in the Lord that for 40 days I didn't even get hungry. That's incredible. But then the hunger set in. He had a need, a deep, desperate need for something physical that would sustain him. And that's where Satan tempted him, in a place of physical need. This was a, um, say it's a physical trap. We all have places that are physical traps in our lives where something can become misplaced or we give it undue importance. And what I mean by that is something like food that's meant for us just to be good for us to enjoy, not even only to sustain us, but if you think about like a big family meal like Thanksgiving, uh, you know, it's not only that you sit down and eat something good together, but it's the preparation that goes into it. It's everyone in community being around you so that you have not only the taste of the food, the nourishment through your body, but the smells, the conversation, the love that's shared between one another. I think that that's what God has in our lives for, for food. Uh, it's not only something physical, but something to be enjoyed in community. When we take something like that, and instead of being something good, we give it the utmost importance we really lose sight of what God's meant it to be in our lives, right? So that's where he tempts him first. Jesus stands up to the temptation, uh, uses scripture to tell Satan why he's wrong, and then moves on. So Satan tries to tempt him again. He led him 
up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and all its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. This temptation is another one that I think we face, not in the same way, but maybe in the same category that Jesus did. It's something that could become somewhat of an intellectual trap. He questions Jesus' status, his sense of power and authority over the world. And instead of something that Jesus was already the one that ruled the whole world, right? So what's Satan really offering that he doesn't already have? Another way about it other than doing the Father's will. We face those same kind of temptations when we look at things like um, our jobs, our success, our power or money that we even have, and it becomes something, instead of being used for the kingdom of God, to becoming the most important thing. Then after that, he led him to Jerusalem, and he said, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down here. What I want to say about this one is that I think what Jesus was facing was a bit of an emotional trap. Satan questions his identity, who he is, where he's from, who he belongs to. There's a lot of places around the world, and and I don't see this as much in our area, but where family is absolutely the most important thing ever. And you can tell if someone's worth much by who their family is. You may meet a new person and say, hey, who's your family? Who do you know? Who do you associate with? In this way, Satan questions Jesus' identity, his family, his sonship to the Father. Well, I think that, you know, like I'm saying, we face these same things all the time. These traps that are physical, intellectual, or emotional. And what I want to present to you and propose to you today is that some of these traps, they become uh, counterfeit gods in our life. They become idols. Things that should be good, but they move beyond that. They move beyond what's good, becoming the most important, most critical thing. We're really going to be talking about today, and what I think steals from the joy of our salvation, is when we take anything and put it in the place of God as being the most important thing. So in just a second, I'm going to ask you to do something with me. It's a little exercise going through and seeing if we can identify some of these things in our own lives. So maybe even now, just write down on your notes, or if if you're taking notes somehow, write down those three words, physical, intellectual, emotional. And I believe that this falls in line with Jesus' preaching, because I don't think that we can really preach the gospel. I think that we don't really experience the gospel fully, and we don't fully experience the joy of our salvation unless it attacks, destroys, tears down our idols, the counterfeit gods that we put in place of the one true God. I say idols, and uh, it may kind of sound weird to people. Like, well, I don't have any idols. Uh, I don't have these stone statues in my house where, like, I go to it and I bow down. I don't take fruit. I don't put it out before it. Uh, expecting something magical to happen. But scripturally, I think that we can go back, and if you look at 
I'm just going to give you a couple of references. Ezekiel 16 and Jeremiah 2 and 3. God talks to Israel about their idols. The people were in, uh, about to be forced into captivity. They had been so, the Israelites were so rebellious to the Lord that he said to them, like I think any good parent would, there's a consequence to your actions. If you continue to act this way, if you continue to not repent, if you continue to not turn from the idols in your life, then you're going to be kicked out of this promised land. Someone else is going to come in and rule you. It's going to be like a tutor, a teacher that will remind you that you're not your own. You belong to me. And in a loving covenant relationship like a husband and wife, that uh, what's meant to happen is joy and sharing together. So when he does that, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel go to the people and what they say, what they prophesy for them is that they've committed idolatry. They've, instead of trusting in God to save them, they knew that this coming impending doom was going to happen. Instead of trusting in God to go out and fight for them, to fight battles for them, they made political alliances. One with Assyria, saying, well, maybe the Assyrians will come and protect us. So the Babylonians are going to come. The Assyrians will fight them off for us. Uh, or maybe the Egyptians. We'll make a plan with the Egyptians, a pact, a treaty, so that they won't attack us. And if someone else comes in, they'll fight for us. And what did Jeremiah and Ezekiel say about that? He said, you're committing idolatry. You, and I just imagine the political leaders being like, we don't commit idolatry. We don't have statues. We're not bowing down. We're not doing anything silly like that. Of course we believe in the one true God. But instead of trusting in him first for salvation, instead of repenting of their ways and turning back to him, what they did instead was look for someone else to be a pseudo-savior. So, Biblically, that's the foundation of what we're talking about today. The idolatry, it's not just stone statues. It's not just wood carvings. It's when we take anything in our life that's meant to be a good thing and make it the most important thing, the critical thing. The one thing that we would say, you know, I'm really longing for more success in my job. If only I got that, my life would have meaning the thing that would give our lives meaning. Or maybe it's that one thing that you already have where you say, you know, if I was to lose that, it wouldn't just be sad. It would be devastating. My life would lose meaning because I lost that. A few examples of that that I think um, we see in the ancient world where, you know, we look at like the Greeks and be like, ah, oh, you had all these idols, all these false gods. You're crazy. You worshiped Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, the one where beauty, good thing, something to enjoy. But instead of being something that was good and to enjoy, whether it was in the form of um, a romantic partner, uh, uh, by that what I really mean is a spouse, <laughs> a married, committed relationship. Um, even in arts, if we see something that's so beautiful and think, oh wow, that's worthy of praise, that's the one important thing. Our culture is obsessed with beauty. The only way to be beautiful is to be young. Man, isn't that just a lie? But we do things, we strive in ways where we don't want to get old. So instead of only taking care of ourselves, working out, eating well, maybe some people here obsess about it to the point where you go, 
uh, if I was to use, lose my youth and my beauty, I would, I would lose everything. That's something to me that maybe could even fall into that emotional category. I look at uh, different relationships that I've seen throughout, you know, Hollywood is the worst for it. I was in LA this last week and just driving down and seeing how different, a thousand miles, how different culturally they are. I was like, man, I don't even, am I on the same planet right now? Where's the Northwest? Where are my North Face jackets and hoodies? <laughs> I don't know. They're not down there, uh, that's for sure. But even in like a relationship partner, like a, like a trophy wife that's so disgusting, we may see in our culture, where even that other person, them being so beautiful, that's what would give my life meaning. Everyone would look at me and say, wow, this person must be incredible. No good. Uh, here, I think that a different trap we fall into is the intellectual one. How much do you know? Can you form an argument can you tell me why you're right and why I'm wrong? If we, didn't, if we weren't able to do that, if we weren't able to express to people the truth of the gospel and how uh, science and the gospel can be reconciled, hey, sorry, I need a sidebar. I think that's an awesome thing. If you can do that, praise the Lord for you. Uh, I would love to talk to you more so I can get smarter. It's a good thing. I think as Christians, we're called to be lifelong learners. We're people that continually learn more about creation, learn more about the world, learn more about beauty and how to enjoy it properly. Uh, we should be learning more about who Jesus is. Someone that's dead, we can study in textbooks and figure out who they are. New interpretations are written about them. But we serve a God that's alive. One that we don't just study a finite thing. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, but there's more of him for me to learn and know that I'm not only going to get in a textbook. I'm going to get through reading the Word and coming to understand Him more and know Him more that way through experiencing what He's created by experiencing one another in community and seeing how it is that Christ makes us come alive. But this intellectual trap is one that says, that's what becomes my salvation. That's the thing that actually goes out and saves me. How much I know. So I just want to take a minute, and actually before we do that, I'm going to give you one more story. When I was growing up, I was in a family that, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, was very loving, was very giving. My mom is one of the um, most amazing people I know. She would sacrifice everything for us. Um, she was completely selfless in every way, and there are some things that she did as simply as always doing our laundry and never asking me to do chores. If I'm good thing. I wish I could go back to that. Um, but as simple as that, and I just didn't really get it at the time. And I think that that's my bad. Um, but I always felt like with my family that I was kind of unloved. I know now that it absolutely wasn't true, but I felt that way. And I, I imagine there's other people here that felt that way. So there are a few things I did where I thought, you know, if I was to get that, my life would have meaning. One of them was in school, I actually thought this. This isn't something I look back and go, oh yeah, that's totally what I was doing. I thought, you know, no one really likes me. My family doesn't really care about me. Um, 
But that girl over there, she is like the cutest girl in school. If I could get her to fall for me, then everyone else would think that I'm cool. That community would make meaning in my life. And I look back on it now and go, man, that's so sick and twisted. But I think there's other ways in our lives regularly where we do the same thing. Something that God gave us that could be good, he meant it for good, that we make it the most important thing and we look to it to be a pseudo-savior, a counterfeit God, an idol in our lives. I want to take a few minutes, and we're just going to be a little bit quiet before the Lord. Um, ask him to search your heart. Ask him to reveal to you if there's places that something physical or intellectual or m emotional has moved out of the place that God intended it and became everything, became the thing that gives your life meaning. So Lord, we just listen to you and ask you to speak those things. And if there's something that he speaks to you, or if there's something that you identify yourself, write it down. And we're going to be talking more about how to destroy that because it's really robbing joy from our lives. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue to reveal more and more to us if there's any place that we're off, if there's any place that um, we've elevated too far. We've gone from experiencing what you had for us in a gift that you gave us and perverted it and made it more than it was meant to be. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about what it looks like in our lives when we take one of those things and move it to the wrong place. And to do that, we're going to dive into Genesis uh, 29, and just a few places, but to um, give us a little background and text to where this comes from, uh, we're going to be talking about Leah, Rachel, and Jacob. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham, so God comes to Abraham and says uh, in Genesis 12 that he's going to make his name great. He's going to bless him so that the people that bless him will be blessed. The people that curse him will be cursed. He'll go out and be a blessing to all nations. That um, even in that same way, that like the savior of the world would come from this line, from this lineage. Well, he has a son, Isaac. Isaac's the son of promises to go on and continue this uh, path to the savior of the world. And he has a son, uh, Jacob. Jacob actually had two sons, or sorry, uh, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And from uh, Jacob's perspective, he was never loved by his father. 
His father preferred his older brother Esau. Uh, so I kind of wonder what that would be like growing up. Maybe it's the same way I felt uh, where someone else is always better, someone else is always preferred. He goes to the point where he starts stealing from his brother. He steals his birthright away from him. And his brother, realizing what's happened, the huge mistake that he's going to make, he promises to kill him. So Jacob, uh, not loved by his father, preferred uh, Esau, threatened by his brother, he's going to take his life from him, flees. He's a guy that I think would be completely feeling unloved and devastated. So he goes uh, to Laban, who is a relative of his. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel. He even goes to Laban and says, you know, I'll do anything for Rachel. I'll work for you seven years. That was like promising an absorbent sum of money. If he was to pay a traditional bridal price, he may have worked one year. He's not negotiating. He's just throwing everything out there. And I think Laban looks at him. He's like, all right, I got a sucker here. I can play a trick on him. I can trap him. And um, he has these two daughters. I think what Jacob sees in Rachel, someone that's uh, beautiful of form and face, the Hebrew words there, some of them uh, deal with like that beautiful face. It means that you know, her face, the way it's translated, is really pretty. She's pleasant to look at. Her form is beautiful. So she was attractive, desirable. And Leah had weak eyes. Somehow that translation, like the, the point of it seems to be a little bit lost to me. If you're saying this person is beautiful, absolutely stunning, and this one had weak eyes, like, does that mean she couldn't see very far? She was nearsighted, farsighted, she was like 20, a million in her vision? Probably not. The contrast there, I think, makes Leah look like the ugly duckling. Just like Jacob. Unloved, undesirable, and crying out for something that would change that, something that would bring new meaning to her life. So uh, Laban plays a trick on Jacob. He works seven years for him, and Laban switches out Leah, or switches out Rachel that he's working so hard for, for Leah. Uh, if anyone thinks that the Bible condones like polygamy or this kind of thing, it's clearly a bad thing. <laughs> so uh, just because it's there doesn't mean it's good. He's pointing out to us how wrong it is in the word. When the Lord saw uh, that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has seen my misery, and now my husband will love me. Not loved by her father, not loved by her husband, has a son, naming him Reuben. Uh, the verb for to see in Hebrew is like the first part of his name, that uh, Ru. Um, the last part, Bain, is son. So she's saying, this son, maybe now I'll be seen. Maybe my husband will actually pay attention to me, notice me, see that I exist. Then when that didn't happen, she became pregnant again. She gave birth to another son. And this one comes from the word to hear. The Lord 
uh, heard that I was unloved and has given me another son. And if it was just in that, I think that maybe she was thinking, okay, well, the Lord's given this to me to know that I'm loved. But when she gets to another, the next son in the next verse, I think that she's still operating under the same assumption, the same thing, that maybe now my husband will hear me. She became pregnant again. Uh, same verse. She became pregnant again a third time and gave birth to another son, and she named him Levi. For She said, surely this time my husband will feel affection for me, and it comes from the word to be attached, so now maybe he'll become attached to me. He'll be bound to me, since I've given him three sons. Can you imagine that feeling of completely misplacing your hope in someone else? She's already not loved not appreciated. Now she gives him three sons thinking, oh, well, maybe now he'll see me. Maybe now he'll hear me. Maybe now he'll become attached to me. Maybe now he'll really love me. And each time, there's no change. She was looking to Jacob to give her life meaning. Maybe he could have done it had he really given her the affection that he um, should have. But what we know happens is that he didn't. So then she gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, This time I will praise the Lord. Instead of making out Jacob to be the Savior and the thing that would give her life meaning, she wasn't seen. She wasn't heard. Her husband wasn't attached to her. She realized that maybe what God was doing all along I think was breaking her from that. And realizing that the place of meaning in her life could never be Jacob. It could never be that. That counterfeit God, that emotional connection that she was so longing for and thought that she so needed, it was never going to be the thing that satisfied her. So instead, she named him Praise. Saying, instead of looking after all these things, this time I'm going to praise the Lord this time, I'm going to realize that he's the one that I should be putting my hope, my trust in. He's the one that can save me from a life that's empty and meaningless. The things that we pursue like power, success, money, fame, intellect, they're never going to save us. They're counterfeit gods. I don't just mean that they won't save us like we won't go to heaven or hell based off of them. I mean that they can't give us the fullness of life, the joy that is promised to us by the Lord in being saved by Him. They are the things that, when we put them in the wrong place, oppress us, make us blind, make us captives. And I brought a little friend along with me today to help everyone visualize this. And this is um, my little pocket idol. And maybe... Hey, Liz, can you come up and help me? This is my good friend, Liz Gobble. Uh, served together on the worship, worship team with the youth group for years and just graduated high school. High five. Uh, but outstanding woman of the Lord who really looks to listen and hear from him. So here's my idol, and I, I want you to describe him. What do you see on his face? Uh, two eyes. I've got two eyes. A 
think two ears, one lopsided. Yeah, those are my art skills. We have lopsided <laughs> ears. Uh, a nose and a little like upturned smiley face. Yeah. Okay, so he's got an eyes, he's got a nose, he's got a mouth, he has ears. Okay, um, I'm going to put him in front of you. So tell me, what do you think with his eyes he sees? Uh, hopefully congregation. Hopefully. What do, you think, <laughs> what do you think this rock really sees? A whole lot of nothing. A whole lot of nothing. He has eyes but doesn't <laughs> see. Okay, he has something to say to you. Just want you to re repeat back what he's saying. Not hearing anything? Okay, so he has a mouth, but he doesn't speak. Do you think he's heard anything in this time that we've been talking? Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> I don't think so. He has eyes to see, a mouth, but doesn't speak. He has ears, but he doesn't hear. Thanks, Liz. I want you to think about what maybe he feels. What does his heart feel? I know I'm being ridiculous. Of course, he doesn't feel anything. He doesn't hear anything. He doesn't see anything. He can't say anything. He's a rock. I mean, just nothing. Well, in the same way, when we take these counterfeits, these things that aren't God, that can't save us, and put them in the place of him, we become the same. For the hearts of these people are hardened. They have ears and cannot hear. And they have closed their eyes or sorry, they have ears and cannot hear. They've closed their eyes so their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. The way Zechariah talks about it is he says, they stubbornly turn away and put their fingers in their ears to keep from hearing. They've made their hearts as hard as stone. Just like my friend Billy the Idol. Uh... <laughs> He's a total rock star. Uh, they, made, they made their hearts as hard as stone. So they could not hear the instructions or the messages that the Lord of Heaven's armies had sent to them. We do the same thing. Even though we've accepted Christ, when we take those counterfeit gods and put them in His place, we become blind and deaf dull in our hearts. I think sometimes it's not just the seasons that get me down in winter. It's that I've misplaced what was most important and become dull just like the idols. He's just a little guy. I uh, kind of brought someone else along that I think feels more like the way... Ah, Use permanent marker on a watermelon. Doesn't really work. Wipes right off. But he has eyes. He can't see. He's just like it. He has a mouth but can't say anything. And what we do is we think we can carry these things around with us. Say, yeah, it's all fine. No worries. I can live my life for God and um, think that this other thing is going to save me too. So we carry it around. And this extra weight is what I believe steals the joy of our salvation. I'm going to wear this the whole rest of the time. It's going to get super heavy. It's not true. I'm going to take it off. Um, Ezekiel has a promise for us. It says, And I'll give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit in you. 
I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I have a little um, story about that in my own life. And here's what happened. Um, you know, earlier I was talking about misplacing things, misplacing the need for affection or even just as, to be totally honest, status in a relationship partner, thinking that that is what would make people look at me and give my life meaning. Well, it got so um, normal to me that it was able to expand and become perverted and twisted and something else that really wasn't ever meant to be there. It wasn't ever meant to be this way from God. Um, I told you earlier that I work at UPS. I, at the time that this was happening, it was probably three, three years ago, um, I thought that if I was to ever get married, have a spouse, raise a family, that, and this is the responsible thought, that I should have a good job so I can provide for my family. Of course, excellent thing, wonderful thing. Um, if you can do it that way, great. If you haven't done it that way, it, you know, life goes on. You work at it and figure things out and determine how to do that. So I started putting so much stock in what I could do at work. Um, it became like a way to this other thing. It became an idol in my life to the point where um, I thought if I just work like how many hours are in a week? If I work like a thousand hours in a week, um, not that many hours, math people, um, I would never be able to, or if I just did that, people would recognize me. They would know what I put in. They'd know how I could contribute. They'd promote me. I'd make more money. I'd have more people working under me. That would be something that I'd need for a spouse. It became so twisted that I'm, uh, I was working part-time as a supervisor. Um, their plan to work like 27 and a half hours a week. During Christmas time, I was probably working upwards of 90 or 100 hours. And uh, I was coming up on Thanksgiving, and I had been double shifting, working so much, thinking, okay, this person recognized me, this person recognized me. I was working for everybody I could, uh, to the point where I was sacrificing my family on an idol, to an, or sacrificing my family on an altar to an idol. Instead of going to Thanksgiving dinner with my family, uh, one year, I became so sick, I sacrificed my health to the idol. I was living off of energy drinks and fast food, no way to live for sure, um, that I completely slept through Thanksgiving, just slept through the whole day. Called my family the next day, the day after Thanksgiving, uh, just to apologize and say, yeah, man, I really missed it. If that only happened one time, it would have been something that could have been easily forgiven, or I could easily forgive myself for. That's actually happened in my life three times, where I sacrifice my family, chasing after this other thing that can never give me meaning and value anyway. When uh, I was 25, I'm 28 now, so three years ago, I felt the Lord calling me to go back to school. I was, he was, you know, speaking really clearly and specifically to me that uh, I should go back to Northwest University, study biblical literature, um, and if 
things got so busy that I had to sacrifice what I would commit here to serving other people, what I would um, sacrifice what I would have to commit to other people in relationship, that I should quit my job. I was like, whew, Lord, that does not make sense. So you're saying I should go back to school, a really expensive one, uh, and quit my job that I would use to pay for that. And uh, so I asked the Lord, and uh, he gave me a pretty clear answer. He said, yes. <laughs> and so I said, Lord, you must be wrong. Clearly, you can't be right. That can, clearly can't be what you're telling me to do. And he said, yes. So instead of carrying around this idol, I, had, uh, I really had two choices. I could be disobedient to the Lord and continue doing what I was already doing, something that wasn't going to give my life meaning. Or I could say, I'm willing to give up everything. I'm going to take off this weight and put it down. I'm not going to know how I'm going to provide for myself. I'm not going to know the end of this. Um, I expected the Lord to speak really clearly and say, hey, if you were to give this up, this is what I have for you in the future. He didn't say any of that. <laughs> so I was studying something that there's not money in. I was studying something that wouldn't really help me advance in the career I was in. I was potentially laying it all down. And I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to do it. I'm going to put your kingdom first. I'm going to put first the thing that I think you're saying. Uh, I graduate in December. So I'm just a few months away. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel now. Uh, I've been working a full-time job and doing full-time school for the last three years. Just hoping to finish. I'm going to come out of it debt-free. I'm going to come out of it still not knowing what the Lord has planned for me out of it. But what I do know happened is I took the idol, these things like success in work, um, being promoted is a great thing, um, gives me more money to hopefully use well for the Lord, but put it back in its place. The Gospel requires obedience. And I think a lot of times I don't want to do that. I want to have my life, all the good things, and have God as an add-on so I can keep sacrificing to and serving these idols. It's even to the point now where um, I just feel free of them. And I, don't, I tell this story not because I think when you give up an idol— God gives it back to you so you can have it in the right way. The thing that I was pursuing that was wrong. But um, I'm engaged now, and my fiance Rebecca is the most beautiful woman in the world to me. And no, shh, don't. Um, but I would have put her on the altar and absolutely sacrificed her if God had not corrected me and got me back to having a proper view of things. I think that even in, our, in your own life, you may be able to see a place where you've sacrificed what God would have you pour into his kingdom in a pursuit of something that wasn't him. Or you may have sacrificed, like I did, your family 
and killed them on the altar, thinking that it was going to somehow get you what you wanted. I know without a shadow of a doubt that God has blessed me immensely in this way, that when I put that down, he gave me something that was even better than I could have dreamed of or imagined. But instead of putting her on the altar and sacrificing her and asking her to be something that she's not and could never be, she can never be the one thing that would give my life meaning. I really believe that it's only Jesus Christ in our lives that can be that. But God's given me every desire that I had. When we come with the gospel and the good news about Christ, the reality is that it confronts the idols in our lives. It has to tear them down. And just like Jesus was led out of the wilderness, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the good news, we're called to do the same thing. This is Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So what? So you can shoot lightning bolts out of your hands? No, so you can be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Throughout the whole world, through where we are today. That we have a God that puts his spirit upon us. He's anointed us to preach the gospel in a way that the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed would be set free, would be given sight, would be given the riches of the kingdom of heaven. In this way, I want to ask you something today. If in talking about idols this way, in talking about the counterfeit gods that we have in our lives, we're looking to, to be our source of meaning and ultimate happiness, if you can give them up. When we worship them, when we sacrifice to them, when we live for them, our hearts turn to stone. It's like that feeling of being in a rut that you just can't get out of. There's a lot of years I've lived where I would say that I feel wooden. <laughs> that I still have eyes and I can see, I have a mouth and I can speak, but my hearing's dull and I have a hard time hearing the voice of the Lord. And I think sometimes it's because we've put something else in his place. That is a gospel that's not only for us, but it's for us to preach. It should give us lives that are radically different than the people around us. So that the world would look at us and say, not you're freaks or you're weird or you're crazy for how you live, but you have a life and a joy that's not like what I get to experience. You might not even enjoy the same things that I go through and look for my source of meaning, but I can see that you found something better. I want to give you an opportunity, and if you have your notes, this is the challenge for today. I'll destroy the idol of whatever it is in my life by doing whatever it takes. I don't want to um, cheapen what it is that you would have to do by trying to fill it in for you.
And not only would I do that, but I would trust in Christ to satisfy me. And I'll look for opportunities to help others to do the same. An empowered life is one that gets free of those things by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit comes upon us not to be freaks or not to be weird, but to preach the gospel in a powerful way that tears down the things that steal away from the life that God has intended for us. Can we do that this week? Look for those things. Lord, I just thank you that you are the only true God, that we may have idols in our lives. We have weights that hold us down. But what we do and what we have in you is true life, true joy, true peace, true meaning. You're the same God who took a formless and empty earth and gave it meaning. And Lord, we trust you and believe you that you can do the same in our lives. Lord, we want to respond rightly to you by trusting you to be who you say you are and to not put anything else in your place. Lord, if there's anything that we need to tear down now, even if it's as simple as rethinking and reevaluating what we've done and how we lived so that we live differently and have our affections pointed towards you instead of what we might be able to obtain, pray that you speak to us now. Remind us, and if there is something that comes to mind, Lord, give us the strength to release our clutched hands from being on it and let it go to you. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Will. Thank you. Reach down and grab these cups in front of you, would you? When Will said...